0: Hello and welcome to the Ministry of History podcast, a podcast which aims to take a look at some of history's lesser known characters and stories. I know what you're all thinking, it's January, it's cold, it's bleak and we're in lockdown, lockdown 3.0. Not much is going right. Well, hopefully this podcast can Aim to put something right, at least. Now, uh, I'll be honest, uh, I'm a one-man band at the moment. Um, eventually, I'd like to get to a place where I can interview people or talk to people, perhaps even get actors to act out different parts for this podcast. But we're not there yet, so for now, you'll have to put up with this being a two-bit podcast written, produced and narrated by me, your faithful host, Tom. Each series of the podcast is going to focus on different subjects. It's got its sights and plans disaster, scandal. This first series is going to focus on murder, of course, because uh, how else will you brighten up your January? So, which topic has the honour of being on episode one of series one of the Ministry of History podcast? Well, where else would we start than a series of murders in 19th century edinburgh that's right today we're going to be talking about the burke and hare murders we'll get to all of that in a minute but first just a bit of housekeeping if you're one of the few people who hasn't checked out my blog what's stopping you type in the ministry of history on google and it should be one of the top results podcasting is the future, but there's nothing wrong with good old-fashioned reading. Head over to the blog to find out about the lives, adventures, and misadventures of all types of different people from throughout history. Want to know about a woman who celebrated her 63rd birthday by going over Niagara Falls in a barrel? How about the man who unwittingly survived at least four assassination attempts in Prohibition-era New York? Read about all of that and more on the blog. That's Ministry of History on Google. If you're on Twitter, type in at Ministry History and give us a follow. You'll be the first to find out about new podcasts, new pieces on the blog, and just anything that's popped into my head over the course of a given day. That's Ministry History, all one word with no of in the middle, at Ministry History. If you're not on Twitter, then good for you. But please make sure you follow the blog to find out about the latest updates. Anyway, that's enough of all that boring stuff. It's time to get on with the story. So let's take you back to a cold, misty Halloween night in 1828. Halloween fell on a Friday that year, and in a boarding house in Edinburgh, three guests were drinking with their hosts. Two of the guests, a couple named James and Anne Gray, retired to the boarding house next door. The third guest, Marjorie Campbell Doherty, was never to see the light of day again. Doherty was to become the final victim of a gruesome foursome. Two couples made up of two Irishmen an Irish woman and a Scotswoman. It sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, but unfortunately, things were deadly serious for their victims. The couples had been murdering guests at their lodgings and selling the bodies on for profits. But what drives two couples, seemingly of comfortable means, to murder? To understand that, we must first delve a little bit deeper into their backgrounds and the Edinburgh, indeed, the Britain, that they lived in. Let's start with the first couple, William Burke and Helen McDougall. When researching this story, I was quite struck by what a normal background William Burke came from. In fact, by the standards of his time, you could even say he was quite privileged. He was born in 1792 in County Tyrone, modern day Northern Ireland. According to Ben Johnson, who was writing for the historic UK magazine, Burke grew into a man of average height, stocky build with short gingery hair. He was quite popular and an affable, friendly, outgoing man. And by 1818, he found himself running a successful farm in County Mayo, which is on the west coast of what would become the Republic of Ireland, with his wife and children. So, like I said, William Burke was living a pretty privileged life. But there was trouble in paradise before long. Sometime after 1818, perhaps in the early 1820s, Burke had a run-in with his father-in-law and decided to move to Scotland. Did he make the move to Scotland on his own? No. He moved with his mistress, and it is at this point that I can introduce you to Helen McDougall. We know slightly less about Helen McDougall. What we do know is that she was around the same age as William Burke, perhaps a couple of years younger than him. We also know that she was an Irish native and met Burke in Mayo. As discussed, William Burke abandoned his young family and moved to Scotland with Helen MacDougall. Their subsequent marriage in Scotland technically made William Burke a bigamist because he never actually divorced his first wife. However, as we're about to find out, bigamy was the least of William Burke's crimes. William Burke found work on the Union Canal with many other Irish immigrants. It's here that he met the third character in our story, William Hare. Again, we know a bit less about William Hare, but what we do know doesn't reflect too well on him. He was born in Newry, which is on the border of counties Armagh and Down in modern day Northern Ireland. When he was eventually arrested in 1828, he gave his age as 21, this would give him a birth year of 1807, however most people reckon he was closer to 30 when he was arrested. Now I take no pleasure in being the one who says that a man is older than he says he is, but for ease of reference we will give William Hare a birth year of around 1800. We know a bit more when it comes to William Hare's personality, but that's not necessarily a good thing in his case. He was not a popular man in Newry and was described as rude, uncouth and confrontational. He was not a man with many friends and perhaps this, along with his look for a job, explains why he moved to Scotland. If a desire for companionship was one of his motivations for moving, then he was quickly justified, because he swiftly met a woman who liked him just fine. Allow me to introduce the final character in our terrible foursome, Margaret Laird. Margaret Laird was a Scottish woman who was around the same age as her accomplices probably born in the late 1790s or early 1800s. By the middle of the 1820s, she was running a boarding house in Edinburgh with her first husband. It was in the city that she met a newly arrived Irish immigrant, William Hare. The two of them began an affair, and before long, Margaret's first husband was dead. Convenient, you might think, although there's no evidence that he was their first victim. In any case, no sooner was Margaret's husband dead than William Hare had moved into the boarding house to start running it with Margaret. Although the two of them never actually married, Margaret Laird would go by the name Margaret Hare for the next few years. Running the lodging house gave the Hare couple a decent income, but they still needed a bit more. It's for this reason that William Hare finds himself taking a job on the Union Canal and it's here that he meets William Burke. Now, you might think it's a bit strange that they become friends because, as we've discussed, they have quite different personalities. William Hare is described as rude and uncouth, but William Burke is described as friendly and popular. Ultimately, though, it doesn't really matter how strange it is because become friends is exactly what they did. And at some point during the friendship, William Burke confides to William Hare that he and his wife, Helen McDougall, are having trouble finding lodgings. Of course, William Hare has the perfect solution to this problem, and he invites William Burke and Helen McDougall to come and run the lodging house with him and Margaret Laird together. In fact, just to clarify, it's actually two lodging houses next door to each other. So there we have it. The characters are assembled and the scene is set. But what drives these four people, who seemingly lead respectable lives, to murder for profit? Well, at the start of this podcast, I outlined the fact that we would need to understand the characters' backgrounds and the Britain that they lived in. We've accomplished the first part of that, but now we must delve a bit deeper into the Edinburgh, the Scotland and the wider Britain that they inhabited. The early 19th century was a time of massive curiosity and exploration of the human anatomy. Doctors up and down the country would experiment on corpses, often in front of live audiences, to demonstrate how the human body worked. Legally, doctors were only allowed to experiment on the bodies of executed criminals. This wasn't such a problem in the first two decades of the 19th century, when uh, stealing a sheep could get you executed. But in 1823, Parliament passed the Judgment of Death Act, which greatly reduced the number of offences which were punishable by death. Of course, this was undoubtedly good for social progress and judicial progress, but it wasn't so good for medical progress because the supply of corpses which doctors were using to conduct these vital experiments was significantly reduced. As the 1820s moved on, doctors were increasingly willing to pay for corpses from criminals without asking where they came from. But if a doctor had asked where a body had come from, what would the answer have been? Predominantly, these bodies were being supplied by an illicit but lucrative trade. Known as grave digging. Grave digging was essentially the act of digging up a freshly buried corpse and supplying it to someone, usually a doctor. This mention of the corpse being freshly buried is important for two reasons. Firstly, in an age before embalming or anything of that nature, a corpse had to be fresh to be of any scientific value at all. Secondly, this meant that there was only a small window in which a grave digger could operate and it was a window which could easily be covered by friends or relatives of a recently deceased person watching over the grave to make sure the body wasn't snatched. Now, from what I can tell, the legality of grave digging seems to have been a bit of a gray area. Sometimes it was punished by law, other times it seems to have been merely frowned upon. But aside from any legal risk that a grave digger was taking, they were also taking a physical risk Imagine your friend or relative is just being buried and you're watching over the grave and you see someone trying to snatch the body. You're probably going to be pretty angry. And indeed, it wasn't uncommon for gravediggers to suffer severe beatings at the hands of angry friends and relatives. But it was precisely because of this risk that gravedigging was so lucrative. This was a trade in which demand far outweighed supply and doctors all over the country were willing to pay top dollar for a body and not ask where it came from. All of this brings us to one doctor in particular, Edinburgh's Dr. Robert Knox. Dr. Knox was an eccentric but popular lecturer at the city's university, one of many doctors across Britain who would cut up corpses in front of live audiences. The circumstances in which he enters our story are initially quite accidental. In December of 1827, an elderly man identified only as Donald was staying at the Burke and Hare lodgings. Now, poor old Donald had the cheek to die before he paid what he owed in rent, about four pounds. William Burke, Helen McDougall, William Hare and Margaret Laird discussed with each other what they were gonna do with the body and what they were gonna do about the rent they were owed. It's unclear who, but at least one of them had a brilliant idea to kill two birds with one stone. Why not take the body to the city's most prominent anatomy lecturer? Dr. Robert Knox would surely pay a significant sum. So it was that at the end of 1827, William Burke and William Hare used the cover of darkness to take the body to Dr Knox. It was exactly how they had planned it. Dr Knox paid over £7 for poor old Donald, far outweighing the £4 that the man had owed them in rent. Better still, he hadn't asked a single question about where the body had come from. It wasn't lost on the two couples, What a brilliant business opportunity they had come across. From now on, they will go out of their way to admit sick or elderly people into their lodgings. It was January of 1828 when they put their ingenious new plan into action. They found a very sick man and offered him bed and board free of charge. Was charity their New Year's resolution? Course not. They knew that the money they would get for his body when he eventually died would far outweigh any losses they made in rent. But perhaps they misjudged the man slightly. For some reason, he stubbornly refused to die. And it was getting to a point where even the sale of his body wouldn't make up for what they had lost in rent. So they took matters into their own hands. One can imagine the discussion between the two couples as they tried to justify what they were about to do. He's on his way out anyway. Why don't we just help him along the way? At the end of January 1828, they got their victim blind drunk and waited for him to pass out. When he did, they smothered him to death. This was to become their modus operandi because smothering someone to death doesn't leave any obvious signs of physical violence. You know, the types of signs that might lead a doctor to ask questions or at the very least make a doctor think twice before putting the body in front of his students. As it was, Dr. Knox again paid over seven pounds for the body. The Burke and Hare couples couldn't believe their luck. Crucially, They had also crossed a pivotal psychological line. It doesn't matter how they tried to justify it. They had now killed a man. They were murderers. And if they had killed once, what was to stop them killing again? Over the next month or six weeks or so, they became impatient at the lack of elderly or sick people turning up at the lodgings. What to do when your supply of ready-made corpses was drying up? Well... It was time to start making their own corpses. If you think about it, making your own corpses actually makes total logical sense. As we've discussed, grave digging was lucrative but risky. All Burke and Hare had done was eliminate the risk, they cut out the middleman. Now they could get all the profits with very little of the cost. They were now fully committed to murdering for profit and so began a months-long reign of terror. Actually, calling it a reign of terror might be slightly exaggerating, because for there to have been a reign of terror, I guess there needs to have been public knowledge of what was going on. The simple fact is that there wasn't much knowledge of what was going on. The couples preyed on vulnerable or poor people who they thought were less likely to be declared missing, And the number of people going into the lodgings and never coming out just simply wasn't really noticed in Edinburgh. That was until the couples made their first big mistake, the first sign of the incompetence that would eventually condemn them. One day in the spring, the lodgings were visited by two women. One of the women, Mary Patterson, was a well-known prostitute in Edinburgh. Her friend, Janet Brown, spent the night elsewhere and in the morning came back to call for Mary. She became suspicious when the Burke and Hare couples couldn't give a convincing answer as to where Mary had gone. They suggested that she had gone off with a friend. Janet let it slide because it wasn't unusual for Mary to disappear for a week or so and sure enough, Mary did resurface the following week, but it wasn't in the way that Janet had hoped for. She resurfaced on Dr. Robert Knox's operating table, but it turns out that this was a big mistake on the part of Birkin Hare and Robert Knox. Mary Patterson was so well known in Edinburgh that she included some of Knox's students as clients. They recognised her instantly and demanded to know where Dr. Robert Knox had found her body, Robert Knox firmly denied that he had any knowledge of where the body had come from, and to an extent this was true, he hadn't asked questions. Still, he was powerless to stop the rumour and gossip spreading through Edinburgh like wildfire. Suddenly, people realised that his supply of corpses far outweighed the list of executed criminals in the city. Knox was forced to lay low for a while and temporarily halt his trading with Burke and Hare. For their part, the couples were disappointed to have lost their best customer and their best source of income, albeit temporarily, but if they were clever, or perhaps a bit less greedy, they would have known that this was an incredibly close call, and they should have stopped their trading immediately. As it was, more acts of greed and gross incompetence was going to lead to their capture before the year was out. On the next episode, William Burke and William Hare become increasingly violent and increasingly stupid in their pursuit of profit. The couples are forced to turn on each other and the trial doesn't go the way you might think. The Ministry of History is obviously not an academic source. I'm influenced by all types of writings and for this episode in particular, I'd like to acknowledge Ben Johnson's article on the Birkenhead murders for the Historic UK website